to Hear the Word of God, the online and broadcast teaching ministry of the Rev. Eric Alexander. At the earlier part of this 10th chapter, the Apostle recalls and restates some of the things he has already shown us uh, and demonstrates in doing so again the superiority of Christ's sacrifice over the sacrifices offered under the old order, that is, the animal sacrifices to which he is referring in verse 4, for example, it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. The first half of chapter 10 is indeed largely concerned to demonstrate the ineffectiveness and inadequacy of the sacrifices that were offered under the old system before the coming of Christ. You'll remember that we were discovering last uh, Wednesday evening that this whole section which deals with the subject of priesthood, the old priesthood under the Old Testament order and the new high priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ concentrates here on the question of the sacrifice that the priest offered. And here he is out to show us, as through the whole of the book, the surpassing glory of the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who has offered a full and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of men. Now, that whole old mosaic system of sacrifices was significant, of course, in that it bore witness to the perfect sacrifice which was to come in Christ's coming. And that's one of the relations that we've been finding that the Epistle to the Hebrews helps us to understand between the Old Testament and the New. It's a relationship not only of promise, to fulfillment, it's also a relationship of shadow to reality. And you get that idea of shadow coming again at the beginning of chapter 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form or reality of these things, of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices which are continually offered year after year make perfect those who draw near. The illustration of the shadow is really a very helpful one. Although, as we were saying the other week, a shadow is, of course, inadequate by itself. You can never be satisfied by a shadow itself. And the tabernacle and the old system, the whole system of sacrifices, the old priesthood before the coming of Christ, these were all shadows, and it was impossible to be satisfied with mere shadows. They were pointing us forward to something else. Yet the shadows themselves have a great significance because you do not get a shadow without a reality. You need a body to cast a shadow. You need some substance to provide a shadow. And the very existence of the shadow in the Old Testament spoke of the existence of a reality, you see. And we say where there is no, where there is no smoke without fire and there is no shadow without substance. The picture the apostle is giving to us is a picture that 
depicts Christ, as it were, standing at the center of history and casting his shadow back over the whole of the history of God's revelation before Christ. And it's Christ's shadow that we are seeing, you see, in the Old Testament. That shadow takes shape in the form of priesthood and sacrifice and offerings, and it is the shadow of Christ cast back into the Old Testament that we are seeing. But the true source of that shadow is in the person and work of the incarnate Son of God, and particularly in his mighty work of atonement. Now that's the reality, and it's this reality that many of these Jewish believers had not fully come to appreciate. They were tending to go back to the shadow. Now these shadows, which you find throughout the whole of the Old Testament, the shadows of, of priesthood, the shadow of sacrifice, the shadow of offerings that were made, and the whole mosaic system, all that you read of in Leviticus, of the offerings that were made for sin, these shadows really spoke of three things, basically. They spoke, first of all, of the gravity of sin, that God should go to such lengths to provide means by which sin would be dealt with. The detailed regulations in themselves are an evidence of the fact that God views sin with a special kind of gravity. And these shadowy figures in the Old Testament, the very fact of a tabernacle being raised up where God was distanced from men, there was a veil separating him, it spoke and all the system of offerings for the atonement of the sins of the people spoke of the gravity of sin. And Israel was being taught all through the Old Testament. And we are taught through the whole of the Old Testament too. And this is one reason we need it. We are taught of the gravity of sin. We are taught secondly through these shadows of the reality of God's righteousness and holiness. He is revealed as a God who hates iniquity who with judgment comes against sin and is only approached through the shedding of blood. And that's the third thing that the shadows speak to us about, the gravity of sin, the reality of God's righteousness and holiness, and the necessity of atonement. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Now that was a great truth that these shadows taught. And they depicted again and again these three things. The gravity of sin, the reality of the holiness and righteousness of God here in this holy place which no man approached except the priest once in the year. God dwelt in his holiness and remoteness and men dare not draw near to him. And they were taught also of the necessity of atonement, of the offering of a sacrifice, of the shedding of blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And as the blood was sprinkled upon the people and in various ways in the tabernacle, as God commanded, there was this message being taught of the necessity of atonement. Now you can see these three things illustrated in the tabernacle system. The reality of God's holiness 
as he dwells in an unapproachable place. The gravity of sin, it separates man from him, and there is a veil which denies him access to God, and God views sin with gravity. And the necessity of atonement, the only way into the presence of God, being through the shedding of blood. But you will notice that there is a note of hope in this shadow as well as of hopelessness. In the tabernacle there is a real message of hopelessness, you see, a sense almost of despair. We were singing earlier, not all the blood of bulls on Jewish altars slain. None of these sacrifices could put away sin and there was a terrible sense of disappointment as people went down after the Day of Atonement because it was impossible that these sacrifices would deal with the consciences of men. And as they came year after year there was a sense of hopelessness in the very repetition of these sacrifices. But there was a sense of hope too, you see. And the message of hope comes in the fact that although God dwells in apparent inaccessible glory, yet once a year there was a way made open into the presence of God for one man. And that shadowy fact spoke of hope for the people of God that the reality would be something infinitely more glorious. Not just one man able to enter into the holiest of all, but God's people able to draw near. And not just once in the year, but for all time brought nigh. And this is the great word of hope that comes in these shadowy figures. Now, the glory of the reality in Christ's sacrifice is demonstrated in these verses in Hebrews chapter 10 in several ways which are familiar to us, and one particularly which is not. Let me point them out to you. There are five in all. First of all, Christ's sacrifice, he points out to us, is the reality. These other sacrifices were the shadows in verse 1. Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices make perfect those who draw near. Christ's sacrifice then is the reality. They were the shadows and we have become familiar with that idea. Secondly, Christ's sacrifice was offered once. Theirs was offered repeatedly. You see this in verse 1, for example. The, since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices which are continually offered year after year make perfect those who draw near. And in verse 2, otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered if the worshippers had once been cleansed they would no longer have had a guilty conscience of sin. These sacrifices were offered then once. But do you notice that they were offered repeatedly, but Christ's sacrifice in verse 10 was offered once. Verse 10 says, And by that will, that is the will of him who came, saying, I am come to do thy will, O my God. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 
And verse 11, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice, he sat down. Verse 14, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So we look to the one offering of Christ. His offering on the cross is a once-for-all offering for the sins of men. And as token of that, he does something that the high priests in the old covenant never did. He sat down when he had finished his offering. Verse 11 tells us every priest stands daily at his sacrifice offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And F.F. F. Bruce says, a seated priest speaks of a finished work and an accepted sacrifice. Now what Jesus is doing is signifying, and this is what it means when we say that he sits at the right hand of the Father. It speaks of a finished work. There is no more offering for sin. There is a once for all offering for sin. Christ has offered himself once for all. And he sits down at the right hand of God as a token of that. Now that's something that it's immensely important for us to grasp hold of for the most practical reasons in dealing with the question of our own sin and of our own standing before God. Our standing before God as his children is settled in the one offering of the Lord Jesus Christ, a single sacrifice forever. And the sufficiency of that sacrifice is spoken of in Christ's sitting down at the right hand of God. And so when the evil one comes to assault and accuse us about our sin, and to suggest to us that somehow or other we are in a predicament because the sacrifice of Christ is not sufficient, and that is a regular way in which the evil one comes to erode our confidence. We are to take our stand on what our forefathers called the finished work of Christ. And that's why John Newton says in that great hymn, Approach My Soul, The Mercy Seat, I may my fierce accuser face and tell him thou hast died. Now that's where we rest, you see. This is the significance of this finished work of Christ. We do not rest on any works of our own. We do not rest on any confidence we have in the flesh. And when the devil comes to tempt us and assault and accuse us on this level, we are to say to him, we have no confidence in the flesh. We have no confidence in anything that we are or can ever become. And all that he says about us is true. For in me, that is in my flesh, there dwells no good thing. But our confidence is not in the flesh. It is in the finished work of Christ. Now do you know how to use, as it were, this truth in the very face of the evil one? To resist his assaults. They overcame him in the book of Revelation, do you remember? They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. That's how they overcame him. And beloved, that is how you and I overcome him. When he starts needling us 
and saying to us, you know, can you really be a Christian with that kind of thing in your life? What's somebody like you doing, calling yourself a Christian with that, that, and this, and this? And when he begins to inject foul thoughts into our mind, as he so often does, coming to the back door, as it were, of your mind, and injecting some foul thought, and then going round to the front and saying, excuse me, but what's a Christian like you doing with a thought like that in your mind? You know? And then he begins to lay the accusation upon you. Do you know where to flee to, where to stand upon? I may my fierce accuser face. And tell him thou hast died. The finished work of Christ. The sufficiency of his offering. For all our sin. Is a vital doctrine. For our practical living. As Christians. But you will notice the third thing. Is not only that Christ sacrifices the reality. These were the shadow. Christ's sacrifice was offered once. They were offered repeatedly. But thirdly Christ's sacrifice removed sin. These other sacrifices in the shadows recalled it. Now you notice in verse 3 what the apostle says. In these sacrifices, that is the sacrifices of the old economy, there is a reminder of sin year after year. And again in verse 11, every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. They recall it. They are a reminder of sin. They placard it before our eyes, but they cannot remove it. Now look at verse 17. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their misdeeds no more. And what Christ has done by a single offering, he has taken away sin. It is impossible, says verse 4, that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. But Christ, through the offering of his body, has sanctified us. Now, when you find that word sanctified in this epistle, it normally speaks of the whole of God's salvation. It means that God has wrought salvation in us, that he has taken away sin, that he has brought us the fullness of his salvation and made us truly his own in Christ. There is no more remembrance of sins under the new covenant. Now, it's an interesting thing that this very same word, remembrance, which the apostle uses to tell us of the, the inadequacy of these sacrifices under the old system in verse 3, in these sacrifices there is a reminder or remembrance of sin, is exactly the same word that Jesus used. There is a remembrance of guilt, do you notice? It is a reminder of sin. But in the new covenant, do you remember how Jesus uses this same word? Do this, he says, in remembrance of me. Now there is a remembrance under the new covenant as well as under the old. The remembrance that the old covenant sacrifices bring is a remembrance of guilt. The only remembrance that God is concerned with under the new covenant is a remembrance of grace. 
Do this in remembrance of me. But from God's memory, our sins have been blotted out because they have been taken away. And through the sacrifice of Christ, our sin is removed rather than recalled. It's a very striking thing, you know, that it is only God who has perfect control over his memory. We were discovering this earlier on in the epistle, you may recollect. Only God has perfect control over his memory. You and I don't have perfect control. There are things we want to remember and we forget them normally. There are things we want to forget and we cannot get them out of our minds. I will forgive, but I can never forget. But God has perfect control over his memory. There are things that he chooses to remember and not forget. He will never forget his own children. He has a remembrance day by day of the needs of his children. And they come up before him day by day. He has our names engraved so that he will never forget them. But there are things God chooses to forget and he will never remember. And the sins of his people are amongst them. Their sins and their misdeeds I will remember no more. Then fourthly, Christ's sacrifice has an inward moral defect, whereas these sacrifices under the old order had an outward and ceremonial effect. Notice verses 1 and 2. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices which are continually offered year after year make perfect those who draw near. That is, it cannot perfect them in the eyes of God. It cannot bring them into the presence of God. It cannot reach down into the inward moral areas of their need. What they do is to deal with the outward ceremonial impurities. Now that is what the sacrifices of the old order did, you see. In the Old Testament, these sacrifices dealt with outward ceremonial impurity. A man, for example, became ceremonially unclean if he had touched a dead body. And there was a sacrifice that removed that ceremonial uncleanness. But the great plea that went up from Israel was that these sacrifices could not make perfect those who offered them in the purifying of their conscience. Look back to chapter 9 and verse um, 13. If the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, that is an outward purification, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The sacrifice of Christ, you see, has an inward and moral effect. Not just an outward and ceremonial effect. Christ's death, when it is applied to your own life by the Holy Spirit, has an inward moral power. It is the moral power of cleansing. Cleansing the conscience. And that's what he means by saying that if these sacrifices had been effective earlier in the chapter, there would have been no more conscience of sin. Because God in his grace 
deals with the conscience and the blood of Christ. But you see there is a moral power in the atonement of Jesus. Which not only takes away our guilt. But purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. There is something, in other words, about the atoning blood of Jesus which has a moral dynamic within our hearts. And that is why, of course, the evidence of the blood of Jesus having been truly applied to your conscience is newness of life, a resurrection into good works and service for God rather than just a negative cancelling out of sin. A negative cancelling of sin is only one part of what the blood of Jesus does. His atoning work has this moral power to cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now that's the fourth thing then. Christ's sacrifice has an inward moral effect. And that is why, beloved, there is nothing that men and women we are meeting with day by day who are battling, battling with a guilty conscience and battling with a weak will and battling with a life that has been soiled by sin and with habits that they cannot break. It is the blood of Jesus Christ that has power in their lives both to save and to sanctify them. Christ's sacrifice has an inward moral effect, not merely an outward ceremonial effect. But fifthly, Christ's sacrifice, and here is the unfamiliar area so far to us in the epistle of the Hebrews anyway, Christ's sacrifice was willing or voluntary, whereas the sacrifices of the old order were unwilling and involuntary. Now at verse 5, the author goes for a biblical picture of the sacrifice which could take away sin to Psalm 40 and to verses 6 to 8 where he finds a prophetic utterance, utterance highly appropriate to the Son of God at the time of his incarnation. Sacrifices and offerings thou hast not desired, but a body hast thou prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings thou hast taken no pleasure. Then I said, Lo, I have come to do thy will, O God, as it is written of me in the roll of the book. Now, what is the distinctive thing here then about the sacrifice that can truly take away sin? The problem with these sacrifices in the shadow world of the Old Testament was that they could not take away sin. What is the unique thing about the sacrifice that can take away sin? Well, all through the Old Testament, people have noticed this tension between two things, sacrifice on the one hand and obedience on the other. And the words that are applied from Psalm 40 to Jesus are these words, Lo, I have come to do thy will, O God. In the volume of the book it is written of me. When he said above verse 8, Thou hast neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, then he added, Lo, I have come to do thy will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And many people have asked, Does then God want sacrifice or does he want obedience? The dedication and application of a will to do the will of God. 
And there is a tension in, in the whole of the Old Testament. Have you noticed it coming again and again between these two things? For example, Samuel, when he comes to Saul and finds him having disobeyed God and offering sacrifices, he says, to obey is better than sacrifice and obedience than the fat of lambs. In Isaiah, God says to the people of Israel, I hate your sacrifices. And again in Micah and in Amos, you find God railing upon the people for the sacrifices that they are offering. He despises their sacrifices. This is the language you find. And people have said, now, what is actually happening is that sacrifice was a rather primitive method of approaching God. And what God really wanted in a developed uh, religious uh, experience was obedience and they put sacrifice and obedience over against each other you may have read of this sort of thing I came across it uh, just the other day in uh, a Christian journal now the real answer of course is not that God wants obedience instead of sacrifice but that God wanted both not an unwilling animal dragged as to an abattoir. But the sacrifice God really desires is a sacrifice of wholehearted obedience. And the unique thing about Christ's sacrifice is not only that he offered up not another offering but himself on the cross that he offered up this offering once and not repeatedly, but chiefly that the offering was a willing sacrifice of an obedient life laid down. And so Jesus says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And right through his life, this is the characteristic of his life and offering, not my will, but thine be done. It is the sacrifice of wholehearted obedience which God requires. Now this is exactly, of course, what the Apostle Paul is expounding in Philippians chapter 2 and verses 5 to 11, you remember, where he speaks of Jesus coming into the world with his face set steadfastly to an obedience that would lead ultimately to death. And this is the sacrifice and the obedience brought together. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now the death of the cross was a death of sacrifice. It was a death of being offered up as the one who bore the curse of a broken law and the curse of sin in man. And Jesus became obedient unto that death. And all through his life and ministry, this is the unique characteristic as the Lamb of God, he laid down his life. It is this obedience that is the great characteristic of his sacrifice. And this is one of the things that makes 
the sacrifice of Jesus, surpassing in its glory. That our Lord Jesus Christ should leave the glory of heaven and set himself in obedience to the Father to offer up a life that itself was perfect in obedience. So he offered a life that was without blemish, a rational life, an obedient life, and offered it up to the Father in obedience. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgression from view we sing. Now this is the unique thing about the offering of Jesus. It was a willing offering up of himself in obedience to the Father. And that ultimately is what made this sacrifice acceptable. It was a sacrifice not of an unwilling animal, it was a sacrifice of one who had come to take our nature in order that he might bear our sin, that through his life he might live in total obedience to the Father and that that obedience might find its ultimate expression in laying down his life for the sins of his people. So he says... In the volume of the book it is written of me, Lo, I have come to do thy will, O God. Now from verse 19, the apostle goes on to the exhortation which is based upon this doctrine, where he is speaking in, from verse 19 onwards about the privileges and the responsibilities of God's people, the privileges and duties of believers, if you like. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way which he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The privileges of God's people are gathered together in the one word, access. Since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus and the duties of God's people are summed up in the one word, approach. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. You see, the duties of God's people are not merely to ponder the glories of what the Redeemer has done for us in gaining this access into the presence of God. The duties of the believer are summed up in this, that we are to draw near, we are to approach, we are, as it were, to avail ourselves of this access. God has gained at such extraordinary cost this access into his presence for us in order that we might approach him. And so what believers' lives have to be characterized by is this drawing near. Not merely, merely pondering in the, on the glories of it, 
but drawing near to him. Now think for a moment before we finish about these privileges, the privilege of access. Therefore, brethren, he says, since we have confidence to enter the holiest, the sanctuary, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way which he has opened for us, through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. I wonder if, if, if you have ever stopped to ask, if God has given you a real sense of the sheer wonder and mystery that it is possible for us to have this access to him. You know, I think sometimes we can tell a great deal about our spiritual condition just by asking ourselves a few questions about this. Is this really the most amazing privilege of life to me? Is this the most astonishing thing that has happened in the universe that a sinner such as I, banished from the presence of God, should be able to draw near to him? That there is a way that God has opened into his presence for me. Does it overwhelm my spirit sometimes just to think of it? And do I prize this? as the greatest treasure of God that I have access. You know, brothers and sisters, we can pray about this and the words are often off our tongue before we have realized what we are saying, that we have access into the presence of God and yet the sheer mystery and wonder and miracle of it has never dawned on us. And yet, you know, the very angels the unfallen creation of angels who have access into the presence of God. To them, this is such a matter of unutterable glory that they veil their faces. And we who have drawn down God's righteous anger and judgment upon us, so that his holiness becomes a flame of fire against us. To think that we may have access to God for anything other than judgment. That, I say, is the greatest mystery of the universe. And when you read on and discover that you have access into the presence of God and find that a way has been opened into the holiest place and that there you are welcomed into his presence as his child. This is the thing that Thomas Binet is caught up with in that great hymn, you know, eternal light, eternal light, how pure the soul must be. And he ponders that the sheer mystery, the impossibility of how we can enter into that eternal light and then recognizes there is a way for man to rise to that sublime abode and offering and a sacrifice of Holy Spirit's energies and advocate with God. And this is what we are told God has done for us. But when he tells us that we must enter that holiest realm of his presence with boldness and confidence, then that compounds the mystery for us beyond all description. 
And this is precisely what God does tell us. We have confidence, assurance, freedom, boldness to enter the holiest. How then has this privilege come to us? The answer the apostle gives us is this. If we have Jesus as our great high priest, we can enter the holiest with confidence. In verse 21, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. We will have to come back to this next time. But you will notice how he bids us come through his blood. In verse 19, we enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus and then by his flesh at the end of verse 20, by the new and living way which he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Have you ever stopped to ask what is the reality to which the shadow of that curtain pointed? Well, here is the reality, you see. We are familiar with the figure of the veil of the temple which was torn in two when Jesus cried, it is finished, and the veil of the temple is torn, and the symbol was that the way into the holiest was made open by the blood of Jesus. Ah, but it is by his blood and by his flesh that we enter the holiest. And do you see what he is picturing for us? that the rending of that veil was a symbol and a shadow of the rending of the flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when he says, this is my body which is rent or broken for you, it is through his rent body that we are enabled to draw near and enter in to the holiest place. That is the sheer mystery of the grace of God that we may draw near through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. So we are to exercise faith and draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. We are to exercise hope in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And we are to exercise love in verse 24. Let us consider how to stir, stir one another up to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near, we are to draw near to him. Beloved, this is God's great exhortation to us. Since the greatest thing that he has done in all the universe is to open a way into his presence for us, the greatest privilege of the believer is that he draws near and enters in and regards it as the greatest privilege of his life that there is a way for him to come to God 
Do you see then what a serious thing it is when we neglect to draw near? When we neglect this access that we have into his presence where we may find grace to help in our time of need. Well now let us pray that God may write his word in our hearts together. Our blessed Lord, we marvel before thee at the vastness of thy love, at thy measureless grace which has wrought for us in Jesus Christ so mightily and opened a way into the holiest for us. We bless thee for the mystery of the gospel and we pray that thou wilt give us eyes to see something at least of what thou hast wrought for us in Jesus Christ. And in thy grace, Lord, help us that we may draw near, that we may exhort and encourage one another in love and in fellowship to draw near to thee. For it is thee we need. It is thy presence that is our true home. And, O oh God, we pray that thou wilt enable us to live a life of drawing near. Bless us now and send us forth in grace and peace with thy presence and thy joy and the glories of the Lord Jesus written in our hearts and minds. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ Go with us all. Amen. You're listening to Hear the Word of God with the Rev. Eric Alexander, a minister in the Church of Scotland for over 50 years. To access more Bible teaching from Rev. Alexander, visit hearthewordofgod.org, where your generous contribution will help us sustain and grow this ministry. That's hearthewordofgod.org. You could choose instead to mail a check to this address, 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601, or call 1-800-488-1888. This program is a presentation of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm Mark Daniels. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for Eric Alexander and Hear the Word of God.